Van Til wrote most extensively about the work of Jesus Christ in a universally neglected volume entitled The Great Debate Today. And we're going to spend some considerable time in this module surveying Van Til's doctrine of the work of Christ in engagement with modernist alternatives. Van Til begins the preface of this volume by asking these two questions. Who is Jesus Christ? What does it matter? This was published in 1970-71. And then Van Til makes this observation immediately after asking that question and says this about these two questions. Who is Jesus Christ? What does it matter? He says, never before has this the most important question of all time, been so debated and obscured as at the present time. And the sad fact is that most of the confusion is being caused by those who themselves claim to be members of the Christian church. Van Til addresses the work of Christ in this volume in a constructive and polemical way. The constructive question arises, who is Jesus Christ? The polemical dimension is that there has arisen in the 20th and now 21st century obscuring trends within the Christian church. The entire volume, then, is devoted to the person and especially the work of Jesus Christ set forth in the Scriptures, summarized in the ecumenical creeds and Reformed confessions, and set over against modern theological alternatives. Now, to my knowledge, this is Van Til's most extensive engagement with Christology, and it has implications for hermeneutics as well, yet it has received little to no attention in the development of his theology. And so we're going to spend a great deal of time now on the great debate today, asking and answering the question in polemical context, who is Jesus Christ and what does it matter anyway? He says, by way of orienting observations, quote, we must dare to follow Paul when he says, Now thanks be unto God who also causes us to triumph in Christ and makes manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. 2 Corinthians 2 4. The Christ of Scripture, he says, as the only source of meaning for every aspect of human life is the Christ that must be brought to men. He says, Jesus Christ is the sole, exclusive source of meaning for every aspect of life, and it is this Christ that we proclaim. But he's not only concerned to set forth that positive, constructive, biblical, and confessional portrait of Christ, at the same time, he seeks to set that doctrine over against modernist departures from this biblical orthodoxy. He says, still in the preface, but this Christ, the Christ, he says, is the 
one and only source of meaning for every aspect of human life. This Christ is not the Christ of modern theology. The Christ who alone is Lord of life is the Christ of the Reformers, of Augustine, and of the Scriptures. To present the voice of this Christ as the Lord of life in the valley of death, as opposed to the Christ of modernism and neo-Orthodoxy, is the purpose of this little book. That's from the preface, page 8. And so what is Van Til doing? Well, if you can think back to Machen's Christianity and Liberalism, uh, Van Til is repristinating and advancing that thesis. He is setting the Christ of confessional, reformed orthodoxy over against modernism and its permutations. Schleiermacher, von Harnack, Ritchell, Boltman, and Barth. And his argument is precisely the same argument that Machen set forth in Christian, Christianity and liberalism. So in back of the great debate today is the substance and structure of Machen's Christianity and liberalism. Confessional Reformed Orthodoxy versus Modernism. On this two questions, who is Jesus Christ and what does it matter? Why should we believe in him? So this antithesis is built in to the deep structures of this book from the beginning to the end of the volume. And so let's start by talking about, now we could call this the positive summary of who is Jesus Christ and what does it matter in the confessional reformed tradition. Uh, there's something really beautiful about the simplicity of Van Til's presentation of Orthodox Christology here. In the first section of the first chapter on page six, Van Til begins with a section entitled, What Then is the Gospel? And so notice from the very beginning, he is fronting the question of the gospel. What's at stake in the question, who is Jesus Christ? What does it matter? The gospel is at stake. The nature of the good news. And he says this, first, the gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the Son of God and the Son of Man, who died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He has been raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Mark speaks, therefore, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the beginning of his acts of redemption that the gospels speak. It is the continuation of his acts of redemption, even from heaven, that the acts of the apostles speak. See, in this concise statement from page six of the great debate today, Van Til begins with Jesus' identity as the second and last Adam. Uh, really foundational here is that Jesus is second, last Adam from 1 Corinthians 15, 45 
through 47. Jesus is second and last Adam. Why does he speak that way up front? This is due to his commitment to covenant theology. The covenant of works, Westminster Confession 7, 1 and 2, was made with the first Adam. The covenant of grace, Westminster Confession 7, 3, is made in Christ, the last Adam, the second man. And Van Til quotes from 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, in the larger context of 1 Corinthians 15. And the point is this, that the death of Jesus for our sins, 15.3, is the death of the second and last Adam. The point is that the resurrection of Jesus on the third day is the resurrection of the second and last Adam. And so, built into the core of Van Til's understanding of the gospel, the positive summary of the gospel, is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the second and last Adam. And this is really going to become a central motif in this book. The historical death of Jesus in calendar time on the hill of Golgotha is followed three days later by the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus in calendar time as the two central events in the history of redemption accomplished. The bodily death of Jesus in calendar time, the bodily resurrection of Jesus in calendar time, this lies at the heart, the foundation of the positive summary of the gospel. So you have death followed by this arrow, resurrection, in calendar time, redemptive history. This is, this is critical. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, and related texts. Now, Vento goes on to say in that quotation that the Gospels narrate the beginning of his saving deeds in terms of his earthly estate of humiliation. And the book of Acts narrates the continuation of his saving deeds in his heavenly estate of exaltation. And so tethered to the death of Jesus, when you're thinking of his death, is his earthly estate. His earthly estate of humiliation climaxes on the cross. The resurrection and the ascension, especially 40 days after Jesus rises from the dead, inaugurates the movement from his earthly estate of suffering to his heavenly estate of exaltation. Earthly estate of humiliation, heavenly estate of exaltation. Van Til flags those and makes it explicit. In other words, Van Til crisply and explicitly centers the work of Christ in terms of his two successive estates of humiliation and exaltation. The one estate does not exist in isolation from the other. 
the two historically consecutive estates together capture the full range of biblical teaching regarding the work of Jesus Christ. So what we said earlier in the module is you have one person and two natures. And that one person with two natures traverses two historically consecutive estates, an earthly estate of humiliation climaxing with death on a cross, resurrection and ascension into a heavenly estate of ongoing service in glory from heaven. Now this is very important to grasp and I want to flag something for those of you who remember the module that we worked through on apologetical method. In that section, I talked about how in the defense of the faith, when Van Til is summarizing the work of Christ, he emphasizes the threefold office of Christ. He is a prophet, a priest, and a king as mediator. Absolutely foundational, central to historic Reformed Orthodoxy. In the great debate today, as we'll see, particularly under the influence of Voss and Ritterboss, Van Til accents the two estates of the mediator and gives us a decisively redemptive historical presentation of his work as presented in the Gospels, centering on his earthly ministry, climaxing in the cross with the resurrection occurring at the end of each narrative, at the end of each Gospel. And then in the book of Acts, the continuing ongoing ministry of Christ as raised, ascended, seated, glorified, and pouring out the Spirit on his church. Now, the threefold office and the two estates belong together. We don't have to choose between them. But as we'll see, in especially in large part due to Van Til's explicit and self-conscious dependence on Voss's polyneschatology, thinking especially now of um, Romans 1, 3 through 4, and 1 Corinthians 15, 45 and following, especially dependent on those two texts, Van Til understands the work of Christ in terms of the traversing of two estates, suffering on earth, glory in heaven. Secondly, Ventil continues. He says, second, the gospel is the news of the living Christ who witnesses to his own acts. The New Testament constitutes the witness of Christ to himself. The New Testament constitutes the witness of Christ to himself. And he says, therefore, as the acts of Christ performed personally in history are finished once for all, so also his testimony to those acts is finished once for all. Herein lies the reason, says Dr. Herman Ritterboss, that it is impossible to be confronted with the acts of God in Christ elsewhere than through the witness of this Christ to himself in the New Testament. Now this is a redemptive historical way of speaking of the self-attesting and self-interpreting Christ of Scripture. This quote in particular. 
Van Til cites what I believe appears to be his own translation of Ritterboss's Redemptive History and the New Testament Scriptures. And here's what he says. Van Til upholds the Scriptures as the God-breathed witness from the living Christ to his works in both estates. So when Jesus ascended into heaven and breathed out the scriptures through his apostles, Christ himself is interpreting for us the significance of his finished work on earth and his ongoing work in heaven. So that when you think of Christ uh, giving us the scriptures, those scriptures are the interpretation of Christ from Christ regarding the meaning of his two estates. And Van Til says, the once for all deed revelation of the work of Christ finds a matching once for all word revelation in the New Testament scriptures that interpret that work for us. Once for all deeds, I'll circle it here, deeds, once for all deeds, are interpreted by the scriptures of the New Testament in a once for all word. They're joined together. The once for all deeds, interpreted by the once for all words, and so the one who accomplishes the deeds interprets the deeds. This is the self-attesting, self-interpreting Christ of the inerrant God-breathed scriptures. And this is something he finds to be particularly useful from Ritterboss. And this is going to be the beginning of a leitmotif but the great debate today is Van Til's homage to Voss and Ritterboss. The history of special revelation, I'm going to put it a different way, consists in word and deed revelation in a once-for-all finished form. What Jesus has accomplished on earth in his death what Jesus has accomplished in heaven in his life is then interpreted as the scriptures breathed out by Christ's Spirit interprets for us the significance of his deeds. The Bible, then, for Van Til, is a revelational record of the history of special revelation that finds its center and fruition in Christ, crucified and humiliated, raised and ascended. Now, this is Van Til's own summary of the matter as he is dependent on Ritterboss. And so Van Til has a decisively and overtly redemptive historical orientation. Now, summarizing Ritterboss further, Van Til says this, still in the first chapter, Christ himself acts, and Christ himself attests to his acts. He himself sets forth the significance of these acts. Christ 
through the Holy Spirit, leads his church into all truth. He opens up to her the meaning of the Old Testament as his word of grace to men. Christ reveals to man his lost condition. He promises to all who repent eternal life. He traces back the certainty of their salvation in the eternal counsels of the triune God. His followers may rest assured that when Christ, who is their life, shall appear, they shall appear with him in glory. Now this, if you sense the way Van Til's writing, is almost preaching. Van Til is proclaiming who Jesus Christ is. He is saying, what does it matter? Eternal life is in the balance. The self-attesting Christ of Scripture acts and interprets those acts. And the significance of those acts is that by these deeds on earth and in heaven, the church is saved from sin and brought into fellowship with God. And so you can see Van Til's not trying to carve out some intellectual niche. Van Til is proclaiming the gospel as embedded in breathed in in the Holy Scriptures, breathed out by the Spirit of Christ as that which must be embraced in order to escape the wrath and curse of God and serve Him properly in this age. Then he makes an additional claim. Additional claim is that everything he's saying here is comprehensive. It's totalizing. It's all-inclusive in character. Listen to what he says next. He says, Moreover, as this work of redemption envelops the whole of history, so it comprehends the whole man and his entire culture. Why? He's quoting now from uh, from Colossians 1, 16 through 20. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things are created by him and for him. He is before all things, by him all things consist, for it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell, and having made peace through his blood by the cross, to reconcile to himself all things in heaven and on earth, End of quote. Vantil insists that the work of redemption, please hear this, envelops the whole of history and comprehends the whole man and his entire culture. It's, it's comprehensive. It's all-encompassing. It's cosmic. Let me break that down just a bit. The work of redemption envelops the whole of history. The redemption that Christ accomplished bears upon the entire historical process. Let that sink in for a moment. Van Til alludes to and quotes Colossians 1.16, By him all things were created. All things were created by him and for him. And so instantly, the sum total of the created universe 
has its origin and end in glorifying the Son of God. Its origin, by Him. Its end, for Him. This is an absolutely comprehensive Christological perspective rooted in the scriptures of the New Testament. Second, this redemption comprehends the whole man and his entire culture. The believer in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. He has put off the old man in Adam, put on the new man in Christ, and is created in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And this extends to the sum total of identity in Christ. And this creates a comprehensive antithesis between those who are in the first Adam, in sin and condemnation and death, and those who are in the last Adam in righteousness and justification and life. There is flowing from this conception an absolute, comprehensive, ethical antithesis. And Van Til applies here the comprehensive history of special revelation to the comprehensive scope of redemption in Christ. Now, just in light of this, Van Til says, that when Christ, and this is really critical to grasp, when Christ breathes out the scriptures, when by his word he interprets the significance of his death and resurrection, when as ascended, Christ by the Spirit breathes out the scriptures, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture uh, is God-breathed, breathed out by the ascended Christ, breathed out by his Spirit, all Scripture, breathed out by Him, enables what? Listen, quote, person-to-person -person confrontation with Him takes place by means of and not in spite of the Scriptures as the finished revelation of Christ. Let me put it still as constructively as able. We'll deal with the polemical later. The Word of God breathed out in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, special emphasis on New Testament in this context, mediates the person of Christ in the power of the Spirit for person-to-person -person confrontation. Revelation is not something that bypasses the words of men that are set forth in scripture, Schleiermacher's view. Revelation is not something that might use but doesn't it doesn't arise from the witness of men in Scripture. No, Christ reveals himself directly by the Scriptures in the power of his Spirit, so that stemming from Christ's God-breathed Word is a direct revelation in history by the Word and Spirit of Christ enabling person-to-person -person contact with Christ in calendar time history. The modernists don't affirm that. The neo-modernists, Bardians don't affirm that. The radicals like Boltman don't affirm that. This is the province of historic Reformed orthodoxy when it comes to the revelation of Christ in history. 
misleads Van Til to say there are two ways of speaking of Christ and his word and his spirit. And this is going to begin to get at the antithesis between the confessional Reformed Orthodoxy and species of modernism and mysticism. Modernism and mysticism. He says this, How can we call Jesus our Lord and then refuse to make every thought, even thought itself, captive to our Lord, to the obedience of his word, as he has spoken it and continues to speak it in the scriptures. How shall we, and men in general, profit from his redemptive acts if we do not take him and his acts to be what he himself tells us that they are? Now just pause there. Let me, let me take a pause. Here's what Van Til's saying. Van Til is saying, there has been direct revelation in history. Jesus Christ walked on earth lived a perfectly obedient life, died in calendar time on the hill in Golgotha, and by his sins propitiated the wrath of God and expiated the sin of his people and reconciled his church to God. Three days later, in his humanity, he was raised from the dead. Forty days later, in his glorified humanity, raised from the dead, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God and disappeared from the sight of his disciples in the glory cloud and was taken to the glory dimension of heaven. And from there, he has breathed out the scriptures, as it were, um, through his apostles, and witnessed to himself in his word as the self-attesting, self-interpreting Christ of scripture. And Van Til is saying, how can we conceivably call him Lord and not at the same time Heed what he tells us of himself in his God-breathed, inerrant, and infallible word committed to the scriptures of the Old, and especially now, after his ascension, the New Testament. You see his point? This is basic, fundamental, supernaturalistic Christianity that is starting to set itself up over against modernism. This is the same thesis you find in Machen. Let me continue with the quote. He says, shall we seek access to Christ through the Holy Spirit, and I'll add to that quote, devoid of the word, and insult the word which the Spirit inspired? Shall we first interpret ourselves, our finitude, our sin, our evil plight in terms of criteria taken from ourselves or from the world and then turn to Jesus for help in time of need? We can well understand and must deeply sympathize with those who have attempted to follow either of these ways. The question of the human factor in Scripture allows of no easy solution. There are detailed questions of text and there's the general question of the nature and extent of the canon. End of quote. But here's what Van Til's saying. Van Til's saying the first way is the error of Anabaptist and Roman Catholic approaches to try to find direct revelation from the Spirit that bypasses the God-breathed scriptures. If it's the Anabaptist tradition, uh, 16th, 17th century, it is trying to find a direct and unmediated experience of the Spirit beyond what God has said in the scriptures. If it's the Roman Catholic tradition, it's trying to find an authoritative voice that speaks directly to and through the church in the person of the Pope that supersedes the authority 
of what God has said in the scriptures. Van Til was well aware that in the former case you have mysticism of a more or less Protestant variety. In the other case, you have mysticism of a Roman Catholic variety. But what about that second approach? Where we first interpret ourselves, our finitude, sin, evil, plight, in terms of criteria taken from ourselves or from the world and then turn for help. That is the modernist proposal. It's almost directly out of Schleiermacher, where we begin with a shared religious experience and a common philosophical reflection on that experience, and then turn to Jesus to try to help us find a solution to our problems. Over against both, Van Til shows their common failure. Neither began, please hear this, neither began with the self-attesting and self-interpreting Christ of Scripture. Both began with experience from the Spirit, ostensibly, that bypasses the authoritative interpretation of the work of Christ in the Scriptures. So over against mystical options that appeal to direct mediation of truth by the Spirit that bypasses the Scriptures, Pentecostal Roman Catholic views, over against modern options that posit universal human experience as the shared horizon of religious meaning that Jesus supplements, Schleiermacher, Van Til insists on taking Jesus' Lordship centrally and seriously. We begin with his interpretation in his word of his saving deeds and our condition. The antithesis could not be clearer. So in modernism, you have some form of mysticism, seeking an encounter with God on the basis of common experience, shared philosophical pre-commitments, making Jesus a supplement to a problem rather than the one who tells us what the problem is and interprets for us its solution in his own word. You see, the self-attesting and self-interpreting Christ of Scripture is not just a little shibboleth. It's a fundamental structural category that regulates the relationship between deed and word revelation provides the proper parameters for the gospel, and sets the reformed view of word and deed revelation categorically over against Pentecostal, Roman Catholic, and modernist substitutes. It's a quite comprehensive antithesis that Van Til is drawing. And then he, he goes on to get to perhaps even more of the heart of the matter, if that's possible. At least, at least to begin circling around the center. I guess you could say it that way. He's at the center of it. Now he's going to circle, as Van Til is known to do. He says, back of all these questions lies the deeper, the ultimate question with respect to the nature of Christ. We have no way of knowing who and what he is unless he tells us about himself. If he tells us that he was from all eternity in the form of God, that he was with God, he was God, 
and that because of our sins and for our salvation, he was made in the likeness of man. Being found in fashion as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Then we dare not say that such a Christ cannot exist. On the other hand, we dare not assert that since the eternal Son of God, equal in power and glory with the Father and the Holy Spirit, is not fully comprehensible to us, he therefore cannot clearly reveal himself to us. In short, we dare not conclude that we already largely know who and what we are and what the environment we live in consists of, how fact is related to logic and logic to fact, and then turn to Christ for further help. It is that point of view precisely from which we have been saved by the grace of God in Scripture. Quite gladly then, do we, by the help of his Spirit, submit our thoughts, our interpretation of the whole human life and cosmic history to the obedience of Christ as he speaks to us in the Scripture? Now, he said so much there, but let me help you grasp the significance of that final quote. Van Til is saying something profound. He's saying, if Jesus is the form of God, equal with God, if he did in the beginning, by the word of his power, create all things, how can we dare claim to know sufficiently who we are and what we need prior to and apart from hearing him speak to us as sinners? You see how basic that is? How foundational it is? And then if we confess him as God, there's no way we can say that he's not capable of revealing himself authoritatively to us in our fallenness, in our finitude, and in our sin. What he's saying is that if Jesus is who he attests to be, who he interprets himself to be, who he has revealed himself to be, then we will gladly submit our thoughts and even the concept of thought itself, the possibility of thought itself to him. And in obedience to him, hear him speak to us in his word. So from this presentation, we can draw the following summarizing conclusions about Ventil framing we haven't gotten to modernism yet, but about Van Til framing the positive presentation following some of the key insights from Voss and especially Ritterboss. First, the gospel involves, at its foundation, a movement in the history of special revelation in the life of the incarnate mediator. That movement is very simple. It is a movement from heaven to earth to the point of humiliation on a cross. And from there, a movement back to heaven as raised and ascended. Jesus Christ, as the incarnate mediator, traverses from the invisible realm of heaven to the visible realm of earth in his estate of humiliation. And he traverses from the visible earth to the invisible heaven in his estate of exaltation. It is a movement from heaven to earth and from earth to heaven. That is the movement of the two estates of the incarnate mediator. That's foundational to everything we hold dear. And you will see that is the one 
central premise. Well, it's one of the central premises that modernism will not allow. Second, as ascended into heaven, Christ by his Spirit has breathed out the Scriptures as a word revelation that once for all interprets the significance of his deed revelation in both humiliation and exaltation, in both cross and ascension. The word and deed revelation, listen, is from Christ and about Christ. It presupposes his deity. It presupposes his identity as the mediator who has suffered on earth and ascended into heaven. But that word is the once-for-all interpretation of the deeds of Christ in his two estates. Third, the deed and word revelation are inseparably conjoined and mutually interpretive of one another. Meaning this, we do not bypass the scriptures for direct and mystical access to God by the Holy Spirit. Anabaptist, Roman Catholic errors. We do not build up from experience in order to find Jesus as its perfection and completion modernism. Now, with these in place, here's what I want you to recognize. What, what sad state of affairs is that this argument has not been unearthed and developed. But what do you see? You see Van Til, the orthodox dogmatic theologian, now deploying the resources from the great redemptive historical tradition inaugurated and pioneered by Gerhardus Voss and Hermann Ritterboss in setting forth in a positive summary the substance of Jesus' work in terms of his two estates, the significance of Scripture as the God-breathed means of understanding it, and it's going to provide a, a totalizing contrast with the presentation that you find in modernist, mystical approaches ranging from Schleiermacher to Boltmann. And therefore, this, this positive presentation is going to serve at every point the polemical engagement with modernist Christological substitutes.